Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight we have a fantastic show lined up for you. My first guest is going to be Bob Estes. Bob is currently splitting time playing out on the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. At 51, his game is in very good shape. Played very well earlier this year at the Texas Valero Open. You know, being from Texas, it's a tournament that he's got a great history at. He won it back in 1994. Before Bob's stellar career out on the PGA Tour, he had an amazing college career at the University of Texas. He was named NCAA Player of the Year back in 1988. We'll talk about all of that and his induction into the University of Texas Hall of Honor. We'll also talk about his fourth-place finish back at the 1999 Masters, plus the season he had this year out on the PGA Champions Tour, which included a a fifth-place finish at the Senior PGA Championship. We'll do all of that. We'll look ahead to 2018 when Bob joins me here in just a few minutes. Following Bob, I'll be joined by Frank Nabilo. You know about the great uh, work that Frank does as a broadcast analyst for the Golf Channel, which we'll talk about. I'll also get his memories from his top 10 finish at the 1994 U.S. Open at Oakmont, which was Arnold Palmer's final U.S. Open appearance. And even though it was late in their careers, on top of that weekend leaderboard were the likes of Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson, and Hale Irwin. So we'll hear how he reacted to being in the mix with those guys, along with uh, eventual winner Ernie Els. Frank also competed on three President's Cup teams for the international squad, so we'll talk about his experience there, plus his fourth-place finish at the 1996 Masters. So a lot to get into with Frank, so I'm really looking forward to him joining me about 25 minutes from now. So more great stories coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour. And as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about what they have going on up there. When planning your next golf buddy trip, consider something completely different for 2018 at French Lick Resort. The Eagles, Birdies, and Pigeons Package. That's right, Pigeons. Take your best shot with a day at our Pete Dye course, a day at our Donald Ross course, then top it off with an outing at our new sporting clay shooting range. This package is reserved for groups of 12 or more. Just you and a pal craving a world-class golf getaway? Well, our Hall of Fame package can't be beat for a pure golf experience and value. Pete Dye, Donald Ross, and our two historic hotels make a legendary combination. French Lick Resort can also help you bring your game to the next level. Check out our Early Birdies Tune-Up, our Game Changer, and Rapid Recovery Golf Academies. Start making those 2018 plans now with an online visit to FrenchLick.com. French Lick Resort, home of the 2018 Senior LPGA Championship and the Symmetra Tour Donald Ross Classic. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a resort it really is and to book your stay as well. And, folks, have you heard me talking about Club Hub Sensors over the last couple of months? Well, if you haven't, listen up and get ready to discover the best portable shot tracking swing analysis golf device that's out there. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub tells you what happened and why. Take the progress that you're making on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that you can take on the course with you. I have Club Hub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips, and I can tell you, since I put the Club Hub sensors on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and to the green, 
But after your round, you can look back at the images and the layout of every hole in the course and see exactly where you hit every shot. No other GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and review your round the way Club, the Clubhub app does. It's available for Android or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed with each club, your tempo, the angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And no other rangefinder can do that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com to order your set of Clubhub sensors today and enter the code NEXT, that's N-E-X-T, to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, go to clubhubgolf.com and enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price, and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. We're also ex uh, excited to be partnering with the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. They are back with the same great equipment that you know and love without the retail markup that you hate. Now you can buy premium Ben Hogan irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags directly from the factory at prices your wallet's going to appreciate. Visit them online at BenHoganGolf.com or give them a call at 844-53-HOGAN. That's 844-534-6426. To learn more about, you know, the great prices and the great golf clubs that they've got available for you and to order your set today. Plus, also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their new holiday collection is out. The shift in seasons is an opportunity to change things up layer upon layer. Give your wardrobe a, a boost of dapper style. They've added some great detail and fresh colors with new additions with genuine enduring character. See the new holiday collection by going online to bobbyjones.com. And as you know, folks, we are partnering with Russ Holden and the folks at Caddy for a Cure. And one of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded And as you know, we are partnering with Russ Holden and the folks at Caddy for a Cure. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while su uh, supporting our wounded service members and Fancona Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side -side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you're going to receive a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs from your day. Go online to Caddy for a Cure, that's C-A-D-D-Y-F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, caddyforacure.com to learn more. All right, now back with me here on the French Lake Resort guest line is Champions Tour Pro Bob Estes. Let me remind you about Bob's background. He is from Graham, Texas, played his college golf at the University of Texas from 1984 to 1988, where he was a three-time All-American and a four-time All-Southwest Conference selection. He won the 1988 Haskins Award, which is presented annually to the most outstanding collegiate golfer in the nation. He helped the Longhorns win three tournaments in the 86-87 season and three more in the 87-88 season. In all, Bob won six times while at the University of Texas. At the 1985 Pan American Intercollegiate Tournament, the Morris Williams Tournament twice in 1987 and 88. He also won the Harvey Penick Intercollegiate Tournament in 1987. And he won the Border Olympics and Rafael Alacon Intercollegiate Tournament in 1988. And in 1999, Bob was inducted into the University of Texas Hall of Honor. 
He joined the PGA Tour in 1989 and was named Rookie of the Year by Golf Magazine. Earned his first, first tour win at the 1994 Texas Open, thanks in part to an opening round 62, and he led that tournament wire to wire. In all, he's won four times out on the PGA Tour. In addition to that Texas Open, he won the 2001 uh, Invincis Classic at the, over in Las Vegas, the 2001 FedEx St. Jude Classic, and the 2002 Kemper Open. On top of those four wins, he has been a, uh, a runner-up ten times. Eight times he finished third, 91 top tens, and 205 top 25s. He played this year out on the Champions Tour and had two top ten finishes there, including a tie for fifth at the Senior PGA Championship, and I'm excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, thanks, Chris. Looking forward to it. So, Bob, you, you had a very successful season this year out on tour, particularly, out, like I say, out there on the Champions Tour. You've battled back from some injuries, wrist, shoulder injuries over the last several years. Are you finally starting to feel good out there? Yeah, actually, it only took me a few holes in the first tournament last fall. But, but yeah, just backtracking just a little bit, um, yeah, I'm still playing on, on both tours. I still have eight more events left um, on a major medical from my shoulder impingement from the 2013-14 season. So I split my time on between the two tours last year, and it looks like I'll probably be doing the same thing um, in 2018 as I start back up playing mostly on the PGA Tour. Hey Bob, I want to go all the way back to your time at the University of Texas. Like I mentioned in your intro, you won a number of times while you were there. You were named College Player of the Year. Talk about your time playing at Texas and what that was like for you. Um, yeah, well, the University of Texas is where I always wanted to go to college and, and play on the golf team. And, yeah, it was, it was a pretty amazing experience um, going, you know, some of the places that we got to go to, to play in tournaments and thinking back about all the great guys that I had as teammates. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. We didn't have as much success as I would have hoped, and I'm sure they feel the same way, but um, but it was still a great experience. And you talk about, you know, the, the players that you got to play with, and, and Texas has a rich golf history. Brandel Chambly was a great player there just prior to you being there. Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kiter, our Longhorn Lenges, just to name a few. Jordan Spieth played his college golf there. So talk about the history of Texas and why you wanted to play your golf there. Yeah, I may not be the best one to answer that question. I'm sure Ben Crenshaw or Tom Kite could answer it, you know, quite a bit better than I could. But, um, but yeah, th those were two of the guys that um, I knew played at the University of Texas, you know, when I was growing up. And um, they just continued that great history um, and then probably elevated, you know, the status of the University of Texas golf program, obviously, during those years that they were here. So, um, and then, like you just mentioned, just before me, um, before I got there, you had um, Brown Chambly and Mark Brooks, who was a major champion winner. So um, lots of really, really good players before I got here. And then there's been a lot of really good ones, um, you know, yeah, so. And Bobby, you were inducted into Longhorns Hall of Fame back in 1999. What's it like to be inducted into into the Hall of Fame at the uh, you know, Hall of Honor, you know, at the at the university where you at your alma mater? What's that feel like? Yeah, that was incredible. Uh, it has been a, a while back, so uh, there's not a whole lot that I remember about the ceremony, but um, just knowing that 
um, the committee did think that I had done enough or accomplished enough to, um, you know, be a member of the, the Longhorn Hall of Fame. Yeah, it is, it is special, and, you know, and I've, I've got the award. I'm actually doing a remodel on my condo, and I was unpacking some boxes, and I, I saw the, the award, um, I think, just yesterday. So, yeah, it's something I'm really proud of, and, yeah, proud to be a Longhorn. And Bob, as you and I were communicating prior to the show, you were meeting with the folks at Austin Country Club, as you know, as you guys get prepared for the WGC Match Play Tournament, which is going to take place March 21st to the 25th in 2018. But how are plans coming for that, and how are you involved with that golf tournament? Um, well, I'm actually not involved with the golf tournament. Um, I would love to be playing in the golf tournament, and I'd be very involved. <laughs> but I'd have to play awfully well um, in a couple of those tournaments, um, you know, prior to the third week of March. So, um, yeah, I, I don't even know that, you know, Tom Kite is, is that involved. He's a member here at Austin Country Club as well, although we have seen him obviously do television um, um, commentary as he was a guest in the booth. Um, I believe that was probably each year. But, um, but yeah, I um, – I, I buy lots of tickets, and I do go to the tournament, um, you know, if I'm in town, which I have been the last um, two times, and I've got lots of people who help me in different ways, and so I, um, I try to, to treat them and take care of them that week. And, Bob, for those who aren't familiar with Austin Country Club, it's got a rich history as well. dates back to 1899. It was the home course of Harvey Penick. Talk about the golf course. Uh, the golf course is an amazing golf course. It's a peat die design. Um, it's actually two golf courses in one because you do have the holes down next to the water. It, it's much more link style holes. Um, they, they flip the nines for the tournament, so it's kind of tough for me to get the hole straight sometimes when I'm trying to talk about it in terms of the tournament. <laughs> but as far as the way the course normally plays, holes, uh, hole number three is the one that's coming down the hill, uh, you know, down to the, to the water, uh, closest to the, the bridge, the third green and the fourth tee. So you've got three, four, five, six, and then seven is an, another par five that starts to play back up the hill. And then the rest of the golf course, you know, kind of winds through the trees and the, the creek or valleys or um, canyons, excuse me. And so much more, um, you know, many more trees and um, the canyon comes into play on, on, on several shots on the, the rest of the golf course. But it's a, it's, a, it's a really good golf course, and it's a great match play golf course. And as I mentioned, it was the home golf course of Harvey Pinnock. Did you ever get to spend some time with Mr. Pinnock? Uh, I did. I never worked with um, Mr. Pinnock, but um, I did talk to him a few times. I was working with um, other teachers at the time, and so I, I never did get a lesson from him. I probably should have. Maybe I would have had a much better career, but at the time I was working with um, different teachers. Um, so, yeah, it was – yeah, he um, he hung in there for a long time, and um, most people, you know, that no golf, you know, are very familiar with Harvey Pinnock and who he taught and how much influence he had on so many people. 
And Bob, like I mentioned in the top, you won your first PGA Tour event back in 1994 at the Texas Open, so sort of in front of the home fans. What was it like for you getting your first win there? Uh, it was it was huge. I mean, some people just want to make it to the PGA Tour, but I always wanted to, to win on the PGA Tour. And so I I was not going to be denied, and I you know, I had a chance to win my rookie year at the DC Open up in Indicott, New York, but lost in the playoffs. So it was a, and I might have had a couple of other runner ups, you know, between that tournament and winning the Texas Open. But yeah, I had friends and family there in San Antonio at Oak Hills um, in 94. And, you know, it came down to the very last hole. Actually, I led start to finish, but I only had a one shot lead still going to the last hole. Um, nine and 18 are both par threes at Oak Hills. And so it's a very unique golf course. But, I remember, um, I can't remember if I was hitting first or second, but I hit a five iron in the, I believe, pretty much the center of the green. And Dr. Gil Morgan, who I was going head-to-head with there at the very end, also hit the green. And I believe he putted first, missed his putt, um, and then I rolled mine up there close and, you know, tapped it in for the win. So, yeah, it was was really special. Did it make it harder sleeping on the lead because not only were you trying to get you know your first tournament victory, but I'm guessing you had a lot of you know fans, family, friends, local media, sort of all pulling for you there in your home state. Did it make it harder to you know to sleep the night before and to get get yourself going you know this, uh, that Sunday afternoon? Well, I didn't sleep very well that night before, but it wasn't because of that. Um, it was more just you know just wanting to win so badly. So obviously, you know, that's not a position I had been in too many times prior to that. So I still remember being up during the night and doing a little bit of ironing. Um, Cause yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't sleep, um, didn't sleep much the night before, but, um, but I, I certainly wasn't feeling the effects of only sleeping for a few hours the night before, I guess the adrenaline thing. And um, I was able to stay focused and finish it off. And, Bob, that win got you into the Masters, and you played in that tournament a number of times over the years. You finished tied for fourth with Steve Pate back in, in 1999. Um, curious to get your thoughts. What, what was it like the first time that you got to play at Augusta National, and, and then what was it like, you know, actually being in contention in that final round? Yeah, I can't say that I remember too much about, you know, my first Masters, which was, you know, right about that time, 94 or 5. But um, but I do remember going there for the first time and, and walking out um, the back of the pro shop so as to where you're looking out onto Augusta National. And it was such a beautiful sight. Being able to see, you know, so far, you know, they've since added trees on certain holes, which um, kind of blocks your, your view somewhat can't quite see as much as you used to, but it was just such a beautiful sight to walk out the, the back of the, the pro shop and, and see it for the first time. And then, of course, just to play the golf course for the first time and then to play the tournament for the first time. Um, I, I, I hate that I haven't performed as well as I needed to to continue to be able to go back. Um, you know, these last um, 10 or 12 years, I think 2004 or five was my last Masters. I still have a dream, you know, and, and hope of, um, you know, playing at least one more time. But I'll have to do something awfully special um, here, you know, this next year. So, you know, kind of going into that final round 
that year. Was there a moment that you remember, like either Saturday night, Sunday, when you thought to yourself, you know what, I got a shot to win the Masters here? Um, yeah, no, I, I, it was, it was a really, really good week that week. Uh, I had a great place to stay. Um, you know, except I guess for one day had a, you know, a, a late tea time. And so I was getting plenty of rest, but I was also I had gotten plenty of practice time, um, on the golf course, on my short game and even during the tournament. So, um, yeah, my, my short game was probably the best it's ever been that particular week. And it was, a, it was a year where the golf course was playing really firm and fast. And I did have a chance to win on the back nine on Sunday. Um, I don't think I was leading when I got to the 10th tee. I think I was minus five. Somebody might have been minus six, um, you know, a few holes behind me. But as it turns out, I think somebody maybe brought this to my attention. I think there were four, maybe five of us that were all five under par going into the back nine. And I really played well on the back nine also. I had a pars and one bogey, but I, I either hit the hole a little bit over the edge of the hole on seven of those nine. So um, it was it was frustrating, you know, that my ball just didn't want to go in the hole, but I knew that I was, you know, playing well enough to win, and it could have happened, but it just didn't. And, Bob, later in that 99 season, you finished tied for sixth. Colin Montgomery at the PGA Championship at Medina, right behind Tiger Woods. In the fourth round, you were paired with Jerry Kelly, and your final round, 69, was the best among the leaders. Talk about your experience and your thoughts about uh, Mandina that year and your memories of that championship. Um, well, the biggest thing from that is that I missed out making the Ryder Cup team by one shot. I, um, I obviously played you know, really well to tie for six. But I bogeyed two of the last three holes. I, I think I bogeyed 16 and 17 and part 18, if I remember correctly. But if I would have only made, um, you know, one bogey in those last three holes as opposed to two, I would have made the Ryder Cup team. But instead, I finished, um, I'm pretty sure, 11th. And um, Ben Crenshaw was the captain that year. And if he would have picked me, um, I would have been the first rookie to have ever been chosen to play in the Ryder Cup that had not played in the prior Ryder Cup. So because of that and also because of, um, you know, mine and Ben's friendship and both being ex-Longhorns, um, it, was, it was in a pretty tough spot. It would have been really tough for him to, to pick me, and especially if he did, and I didn't perform well in the Ryder Cup. So... Um, I completely understood um, when he, you know, jumped past number 11 and um, took either, you know, Steve Pate or Fred Couples or whoever it was, um, you know, beyond, you know, beyond me. But um, I, I completely understood. But it sure would have been nice to have made that team. Bob, just a couple more before we let you go. And as you mentioned, you know, towards the top, you're going to be splitting time between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour in 2018. What's your schedule looking like for next season? Uh, actually, uh, people keep asking me that, and I just had some uh, one of the members of ACC ask me that about an hour ago, and I told him <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I've, I've been looking at the schedule. I haven't put both schedules down side-by-side side, um, you know, to get an even better idea, but um, my plan is I'm still, you know, I'm not playing and practicing every day right now, but I, I am making some good progress when I do. 
Um, and, and winter just arrived um, last night, by the way, here in Austin as well. So, um, but as far as tournaments go, I'm looking at the schedule. It's going to have a lot to do with how I feel my game is going in um, that, you know, when, when the first couple weeks of January. The third week of January is the old Bob Hope tournament in the desert. That could be my first tournament, or I could wait, wait a few um, weeks later to start at Pebble Beach or um, even out in L.A. at Riviera. So I really don't know for sure. Since I only have eight tournaments on the regular tour to make a certain number of points or money, um, I really want to make sure that I play the right tournaments and I don't start up too soon. I want to, I want to make sure that my game is about as good as it can possibly be before I start um, pursuing that so that I can you know, hopefully get myself um, fully exempt on the regular tour again and then just play both tours and play you know, whenever I want to on either one. Bob, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with uh, all the things that you're doing and follow you online, whether it's, uh, you know, on, like I say, online or over social media? Yeah, the only thing that I have really have time to do or take the time to do is on Twitter, but I'm on there quite a bit, and uh, it's just Bob Estes PGA, and so, um, yeah, we, we talk a lot. Uh, I retweet a lot of smart people. We debate a lot, um, politics, golf. Um, so if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, um, and if they have any questions, they can just send me those questions publicly or they can uh, DM me. Um, I, I'll leave that open so they can, um, send me questions that way as well. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back on the show. You're a great guest. I really appreciate you uh, being here and hope you'll come back and do it again soon when you start to know about what your uh, tournament schedule is going to be like. We'd love to hear all about it, and, and uh, certainly we'll be following you throughout the, you know, the remainder of this year and starting into next year. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your time tonight. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. All right. Take care, Bob. Okay. That bye. is uh, Bob Estes. And uh, check him out online, again, on Twitter, at Bob Estes PGA. And uh, keep your eyes on him because uh, he certainly had a great season uh, this year. You know, like I say, you know, uh, splitting his time between the two tours. But uh, a tied for fifth at the Senior PGA Championship is pretty strong. So uh, I'm sure his game is going to be in great shape, and I'm sure he's going to do some really good things, some special things we're hoping for him in, uh, in 2018. All right, I'm going to get to my next guest, Frank Nabilo, and we'll do that right on the other side of this quick station ID. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on great sites like TuneIn and Podbean. Now, back to you, Chris. I want to give a shout-out to a few of our other sponsors. First, I want to remind you about our friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind with their great line of T-shirts and hats. To win any golf tournament, you've got to sink the final putt. We all wake up every day to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, and get better each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at SyncIt.com. And folks, have you heard me talking about Clubhub sensors over the last couple of months? Well, if you haven't, listen up and get ready to discover the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Clubhub tells you what happened and why. 
Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have Club Hub sensors on all of my golf clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips. And I can tell you, since I've put Club Hub sensors on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and to the green, but you can, you, know, you can see your round and see images and where you hit every shot on every hole on that golf course that day. So it's a fantastic you know, visual for you. And no other GPS tool on the market captures. I don't let you go back and review your round the way Club, the Club Hub app does. It's available for Androids and iPhones. The app keeps track of your swing speed with every club, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your golf swing as well. And no other rangefinder can do that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com to order your set of Club Hub sensors today and enter the, the uh, coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com, enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price and see your game in a whole new way. And now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Frank Navalo. You know Frank from the great work that he does broadcasting on the Golf Channel, but let me you know, give you some more background on Frank. He is from Auckland, New Zealand. At the age of 18, he won the New Zealand Amateur Championship, becoming the second, young, second youngest player ever to win that title. He turned pro in 1979. His first, first professional win came at the 1982 New South Wales PGA Championship. He won the New Zealand PGA Championship twice in 1985 and 1987, joined the European Tour in 1985 as a full-time player and got his first win on that tour at the 1988 PLM Open. Frank finished in the top 50 on the European Order of Merit every year from 1988 to 1996, and all he won 14 times around the world, including two Sarazen World Opens, the 1997 Greater Greensboro Chrysler Classic here on the PGA Tour. He's played on numerous World and Dunhill Cups for New Zealand and was a three-time member of the International President's Cup team. In the mid-1990s, Frank recorded top 10 finishes in all four major championships, including a fourth-place finish at the 96 Masters, a ninth-place finish at the 94 U.S. Open, 10th at the 97 Open Championship, and 8th at the 96 PGA. Frank joined the Golf Channel back in 2004 as now a lead analyst on their PGA Tour coverage and in their studio shows for Golf Central and Live From shows, and I'm honored that he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Frank, Chris Mascaro here. Thanks for coming on the show. Sorry it's taken so long, Chris. Yeah, looking forward to it. I appreciate it, Frank. So, Frank, I want to start by going back to, you know, when you first started playing the game. I read a couple of friends persuaded you to play golf when you really fancied playing rugby instead. But is that, is that accurate? Is that how it got started for you? Um, it was just about every other sport bar golf, to be honest, yeah. Um, uh, a friend of mine, his, his name was Chris Treen. His parents sort of put him into golf um, very, very early on in life. So he'd started playing golf since about the age of five or six. But, um, you know, there was three of us. And, and the third guy in question is a guy called Mark Lewis. His uh, elder brother lost in the final of Wimbledon to John McEnroe. Um, uh, in the early 70s, if my memory serves me right, Mark, um, in the end, uh, turned pro as a tennis player. I actually finished up co- coaching Michael Steak. But, yeah, the three of us went out. I was 13 years of age. Um, fell in love with the game. I really did. We only got to play 15 holes. It got too dark. It was at a public golf course, and I think that's where everybody should start. Um, got hooked on it and um, have been tormented by it ever since. 
And to that point, Frank, at 13 years old, at what point, you know, since you, you start winning golf tournaments, big golf tournaments, by the time you're 18, at what point did you start thinking, you know what, I could be pretty good at this? Um, it's it's a great question. Um, I, I think when kids take up the game, obviously if you take it up about the age of three or four, then, you know, like a Roy Macker or a Tiger Woods, you learn to chip and part and do all those things because obviously you don't have the power. Either that or if you take it a little um, little later in life, you know, 13, 14 years of age, normally you're strong enough and you've played other sports. So I think you generally tend to improve very, very quickly. And, um, you know, for me, you detailed the, the New Zealand amateur at 18. I won that on my 18th birthday. So as, as soon as that happened, and I, and I played with um, our leading amateur, our greatest ever amateur, a gentleman by the name of Stuart Jones. He said a lot of nice things, and, and it sort of coerced me to to think about golf as a career. I've always loved sports, um, whether it be team sports or individual. So it just sent me down an area where, or a lane, should I say, where where I could um, find my own way, basically. Do you, you know, certain moments in, in golf, you know, sort of stick with you. And and for me, I mean, I always remember the first par I made. I remember the first birdie I ever made. Do you remember the first birdie you ever made? I don't remember the first birdie, to be honest, but I remember the first missed birdie part, the second hole at Chamberlain Park. Um, and that's a public golf course, believe it or not, with Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer played an exhibition match in the 60s. It was a short, you know, par three. I remember hitting um, a, a wood, believe it or not, because I didn't know how far it went. I hit it to about four feet. And... Um, well, maybe even not even four feet and missed it, lipped it out. So at one stage I thought, this game isn't that hard. And then when I saw the ball horseshoe out, um, I'm like, oh, maybe it's not that easy. But uh, I'll never never forget the shot. I'll actually never forget the missed part either. But um, never, I, I cannot remember what the first birdie I ever made. <clears throat> you remember your first start out, out on tour, where that was? Um, yeah, I, I do. Matter of fact, I was I was um, just in New Zealand. Uh, it was called the Hall of Fame. I, I got inducted into the New Zealand Golf Hall of Fame. I hadn't been back for a while. And, and I was there, actually, to work the Asia-Pacific Amateur uh, Championship. Uh, you know, the winner of that gets a start into the Masters. So that's an initiative that I've been involved in for the last six or seven years. And it was in Wellington, which is our capital city in New Zealand, not where I, brought, I was brought up. I was brought up in Auckland, as you detailed. But the first ever, and I remember in the speech that um, that I had to make that night, I remember saying, you know, thank you for allowing me to complete the circle because that was, Wellington was a place where I played with my first ever professional golf tournament. That was in 1979. Um, and I'd got to play as an amateur with Billy Casper the year before also in Wellington. So, um, you know, for me it was a trip down memory lane. But, um, yeah, uh, it was in, uh, December 1979. And Frank, you, you mentioned the Masters, and, and I love the Masters. I love Augusta National. And when I was doing the research on you, it looked like your first trip to Augusta National was back in 1995. Is that right? And do you remember your first time there? Yeah, I do. I'd, uh, I was working with my coach, Dennis Pugh. In those days, they didn't use the top 50 of the world rankings, so you had to get in by virtue of uh, playing well in another tournament. And a good friend of mine now, Ken Schofield, was the, the head of the European Tour, and he fought extremely hard with the USGA and the PGA Tour to sort of grant at least money list positions for some of the prominent events in, in America. For example, um, Faldo didn't play a lot of Masters early on because, or should I say a lot of US Opens early on, because they would only ever take the leader of the European Tour money list. So that year, um, or should I say the previous year, which was 1994, 
uh, they allowed the top 15 of the European Order of Merit to get into the US Open. And uh, that was the first US Open I ever played. It was at Oakmont, and I finished up in the last group with Ernie Els on Sunday. Played good enough to um, to finish in the you know the top ten or whatever it was, and that garnered me an exemption into, or should I say, an invitation into Augusta for 1995. Um, I remember going there. I was so excited. I'd, I'd heard all the stories that you had to hook it. So I used to hit it with a little cut. So I spent like a couple of months leading up to it with my coach Dennis Pugh on trying to hook it. Got there and. And uh, before I knew it, I was like hooking. And, and matter of fact, I think it was the first score I ever shot in the 80s was the first round. And I was going to pull out. I was so disappointed. And um, my wife and uh, my coach, we were at um, a Japanese restaurant that night. And I'm like, you know, complaining and moaning like everybody does or that plays the PGA Tour. And um, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to play the next day. And my coach looked at me and says, you're going to have to. And I'm like, no, I don't. Why? He says, you're drawn with Arnold Palmer. So um, I went out the next day. I think I shot 73, but I got to play with the king, and uh, and I'm glad I didn't withdraw and didn't set a precedent. But um, and things looked up after that. The very next year, I finished fourth when I came back. Right, and uh, to that to that point, you, you finished fourth the next year. What was it like being in the hunt at a Masters? Uh, it's great. Any major championship, I, I'd actually played well in major championships, and you know, I'd, uh, played four rounds in the majority of the ones that I played in. Uh, but that one was was abnormal because uh, it obviously involved two European heavyweights uh, or people that played the European tour that I knew very well, and Greg Norman and Nick Faldo. And I remember seeing Greg on the range uh, just before uh, I was about to go off. And you know, you just wish people luck. I thought he'd paid his dues and six shots. He wasn't going to blow it, um, even though Faldo had birdied the the 18th hole the night before to get into that last group. But um, I've said it on TV a lot. Everybody talks about the roars at Augusta, but when it goes quiet there, it is suffocating. And that's exactly what happened. When when Norman started to make a few bogeys, uh, the roars went. And um, excuse the terminology, but it was almost like a funeral procession, uh, procession. You knew something bad was happening. And, of course, he had the one guy who was playing his best golf of his life through the 90s. That was Nick Felder, who wasn't going to budge. And it already obviously... Uh, had a couple of masters under his belt, so he knew exactly what um, the back nine at Augusta was going to be like when uh, when the most intense pressure was on and, and hit one of the, the great long irons into um, to 13. That still doesn't get enough credit, that two on off the hanging slope. But, yeah, it was great. I got to play with David Duval, actually, in that final round, too. First time I ever played with David. And Frank, a moment ago, you, you mentioned the 94 U.S. Open at Oakmont. First, that was obviously that was Mr. Palmer's final U.S. Open. So what what was it like for the rest of you guys, you know, through those first two rounds as, as Arnold is sort of playing out, you know, his U.S. Open career? What was it like for you guys and the galleries that were that were following him? I, I imagine it had to be a little, you, 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 your attention goes there, but it had to be a little surreal having, you know, the king kind of play out his last, his, uh, his last U.S. Open there. Yeah, selfishly. Being my first U.S. Open, when I got there, I wasn't exactly hooked into the whole Arnold Palmer's last U.S. Open. And I think he played with Rocco Media and John Mahaffey um, in that round. But obviously by, by Friday, you knew it was extremely important. He was only a couple of groups away. But I remember finishing and seeing, um, you know, they had a, a, a screen um, in the locker room and that, and you could see what was going on in the media center. And, you know, I was brought up, you know, pretty tough school in New Zealand and that, and, and I was sort of in the era where men weren't meant to cry. 
Um, doesn't matter how bad you felt. You know, you went behind somewhere else and cried when nobody else could see you. And, and I'll never forget Arnold Palmer uh, thanking the media and crying. And there's this you know, sort of macho guy um, that had played all the way around the world. Everybody knew him by the king, and, and um, everybody had a story with him. And little unknown to me, I was going to play with him the next year in the Masters. And uh, so I, I, I remember him just thanking the media and crying. And I'm like, it's okay to cry. Um, I, I just thought it was a huge revelation. And oddly enough, when I spoke to other people, they got the same feeling out of that. You know, Arnold always made you feel welcome. Um, obviously, with the Golf Channel, got to know him a lot, and saw him over dinner. And you know, if you'd pop over to Bay Hill, uh, just a phenomenal man. So he he defaulted always to the right thing, but um, he was a media mogul. He just he just knew what to say, uh, shake a kid's hand or whatever. He's a he's a one-off. And Frank, the the leaderboard for that U.S. Open was amazing because after Mr. Palmer exited the tournament. Jack Nicholas was still near the top of that leaderboard. Tom Watson was there. Hale Wilruin was there as well. You and Ernie Els. What was it like competing with those names being on the leaderboard? Uh, it, it was hard. Um, you know, once again, not trying to sort of play on the fact that I you know, come from a small country, but you, you idolize those people. You're waking up in the morning and watching major championships around the world, the, they were the poster ch- children for the game. Um, if you didn't know who Nicholas was, you didn't play golf. If you didn't know Arnold, you know Arnold Palmer or Tom Watson or Greg Norman or, or whatever, and and also Nicholas Norman, you know their surname start with N, so mine does as well. So my locker at a major was always close to theirs. So the, the where that's where it was surreal. You'd go in and and uh, you couldn't avoid it. And uh, you know just, that's the Mount Rushmore of golf. So it was phenomenal to. To be in, involved in not necessarily that era, because obviously you know, Jack Nicklaus started in you know, late 50s, 60s, you know, his amateur career in the 50s. But um, I was saying it last week with regard to Tiger Woods is that normally each generation takes over the previous one. You got to play with the greats of the game and get beaten, and then maybe when you your game stood up to it, you finally you know got a few victories or whatever over them, and then you could feel even more comfortable. Um, obviously with Tiger Woods the last few years being injured, um, this new generation have never really had to compete with them, which is uh, anomaly with uh, with the game of golf. But, yeah, so to answer your question, it was phenomenal to look at that leaderboard and, and basically see on just about every, every name that I'd respected or swing I'd seen and try to copy to see them on the leaderboard. And, Frank, you got to play in three President's Cup matches, and you helped the international team win it back in 1998. Talk about what it's like being a part of those matches. Yeah, growing up as a kid, playing other sports, I've always craved for team sports. So to play in Dunhill Cups, which used to be a three-man team, we were runner-up to America one year in the final at St. Andrews. Uh, World Cup was a two-man team, but, you know, a 12-man team. We could never play Ryder Cup. And, and uh, when I played in Europe for you know nearly a 10 dozen years, um, everything revolved around the Ryder Cup. I remember Ken Schofield once saying, you know, the Ryder Cup is our Tiger Woods, our Jack Nicklaus. And uh, we we could never play. Uh, the Nick Prices, the Ernie Alses, the VJ Sings, Greg Normans, um, all the players that came from other parts apart from Europe or America, they could never play in a team event of that magnitude. And that's why the President's Cup started. Um, in those days, you know, a lot of the, the, the top of the world rankings... Um, there was non-American, non-European players there. 
So it just seemed very, very logical. I know right now we're a little starved there for depth, but um, it seemed logical to have this event. And, and so we, we stacked up on paper pretty good, at least the top five or six players did. And so to have a chance to play the Might of America, um, it's still one of the greatest things I've ever done. Uh, the first one at Lake Manassas, we were like a fish out of water, but we got to go to the White House. And the second one, we were competitive. And the last one I played at Royal Melbourne, um, we won in a landslide against a very, very strong American team. I, I think it was a little late in the year for the Americans. They'd sort of uh, gone for a little bit of a holiday. And um, they probably didn't have their best stuff, but um, after being beaten narrowly the year, the two years prior to that, we were we had the bit between the teeth. But um, I, I'm a great believer in the event. I know people say otherwise, but when they compare it with the Ryder Cup, um, it's actually, believe it or not, off to a better start than the Ryder Cup was. People just forget that. They don't dig into their history. To the, the, the point you made a moment ago, Frank, there's, there was so much talk this year after the U.S. team got off to such a big early lead that maybe they need to change something, change how the event is played. Do they? Does anything need to change? Well, yeah, I can. it's one of those discussions. You can see both sides of it. Um, you've got an exceptionally good young, or great young team now um, that all sort of grew up to that class of 2011 that we talk about. So much of that team, nearly half of it is from that. So it's a, it's a whole generation that are just used to playing together, and, and they haven't been beaten. Um, you know, they've had success now in Ryder Cup and President's Cup, so it's a tremendous nucleus. Meanwhile, on the other side, the whole generation of the last 10 years of um, the Adam Scotts, the Jason Days, they have not had a win. So you've got a generation of people that, that um, have not succeeded in that. So it's been tough for them to always try and decode it. Um, the changes to try and make the points a little more like the Ryder Cup. I, I, I personally believe if Samuel Ryder was a, was alive and saw the way golf was now, he would agree with like an America's Cup type format, you know, the yachting race, and maybe the President's Cup would be a defender's, you know, a chance for the challenger to play for the Ryder Cup. So in this situation, America would get a buy, and they would be because you know, they're the holders of the Ryder Cup in Europe and. And um, the rest of the world would play for the right to play the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. Um, I know why that won't happen. Obviously, the Europe, Europe don't want to give away a piece of the Ryder Cup. I think the Americans would probably go for it to give them a break. But, yeah, it's just a, a tough time. If you, um, if you look at the first sort of 25, 30 years of the Ryder Cup, it was extremely one-sided. Actually, the first 50 years were. So it, it'll take time. Um, when you're trying to put in a lot of nationalities in one team and get them to gel, there's uh, logical problems, uh, language barriers and that, that still haven't been overcome. That's, that's the real problem rather than the format. Frank, just a couple more before we let you go. And, and you're such a talented analyst now on, on the Golf Channel. You do such a wonderful job on all the shows that you do. Talk Thank about the, the transition. How did you go from playing the game you know, out on tour to broadcasting it and analyzing it on the Golf Channel? Uh, it was a fluke, to be honest. Um, you know, when I look back, it's a bit like you know my amateur career in golf. Um, I got diagnosed with rheumatoid inflammatory polyarthritis in my rookie year in America in 1997. So I knew, in some respects, the writing was on the on the wall. Uh, medication in those days wasn't as good as what it is now. And um, you know, I tried to play; it got worse. So, you know, I couldn't really play and play. And if you ask my wife, she would say that I you know became miserable. So in the end, when I, when I pulled the plug at the end of 2002, I really didn't know what was around the corner. People would ask me in pro-ams, and I, my answer was always, well, if I knew what I was going to do, then I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I always thought you should focus on the de endeavor in front of you. 
And I remember, um, the, does the name Jeff Julian ring a bell? Yes. Yeah, ALS. I, um, my wife got to know his significant other, and, and I remember playing in his day. I, I played with his, his uh, sister, and that's when Jeff was doing very, very poorly, you know, obviously with the ALS. And um, those sort of days, even though I've done a few of them, I, I don't, I struggle with them. So I was sitting outside just trying to come to grips. It was a very emotional day. And believe it or not, Rich Lerner saw me, and uh, he just sat down and chatted. And, and I was sort of coming to the end of my career, but somebody was going to lose their life, and it was unavoidable. So, you know, I'm like, last thing I was thinking about was, was doing something else. And he said, maybe you should think about TV. And I'm like, I sort of laughed it off, and, and I remember talking to my agent, and he goes, well, you know, the Golf Channel is looking for people. And in those days, they had the Champions Tour, so it was uh, less visual, so to speak, when you learn. And... Um, Lo and behold, they, they needed some people, and, and I thought, well, what the hell, I'll give it a go. I've got nothing to lose. And that's exactly what happened. And so in 2004, my first start was um, was in Hawaii. Um, I'll never forget it. And sat next to Jim Kelly and, and Mark Rolfing. Tina Mickelson was also on the broadcast. That was her debut. And, and um, it was it was a rough start, but, you know, I was lucky. I, I had a, a great producer in Keith Hirschland. Um, didn't think he liked me early on, to be honest. But he was—he um, made everybody better that that he worked under. And then I worked with just about every great producer in the game now. Um, so I've been very, very fortunate. Yes, and, and Keith's a fantastic guy. We've had uh, had the privilege of having Keith on the show a few times this year and get, getting to know him. So I'll be sure to pass along, uh, you know, the, the wonderful comment you just made. I appreciate that very much, Frank. Before we let you go. Let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the things that you're doing? And, you know, follow you online, follow you on social media to see all the great things you're going to be up to. Um, they probably can't, really. I've, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, social media. Um, I don't really like the direction it's gone. I, I realize it's essential, but... Um, you know, if, if, if see me at golf tournaments, um, you know, I love people, whether I run into them at a restaurant or, or, or whatever. Um, if I can talk to them face-to-face, I'll talk their air off and, and hopefully answer, answer anything they want. Um, I always think, you know, social media is more about clickbait with a lot of people that use it these days that, that are in my industry. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're getting further away from people asking, you know, proper questions and people giving them proper answers. Um, it's all about sort of... Uh, trying to push it through so um for example i'm in naples this week and just stop me i'll be i always drive around a golf course or i'll be on the range always trying to do my homework on live broadcast so um i'd love a dollar for every time somebody stopped me and we've had a good chat um that's how you learn as well from my point of view uh, learn what people want how, what the, i always ask them what they think what they want and uh, what do they think we do wrong what do we think we do right and and i learn because it's their show that's what we do it for uh, we're, we're just a conduit for the game we're not when we're not bigger than the game other people might disagree with that but um it's a great game whether i'm playing it now because i'm not or somebody else's um so i get a, i get a the best seat in the house and all i try and do is pass on some of the things that that i see the best players in the world doing there you go that's fantastic Frank, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join me tonight. It's uh, it's fascinating for me to listen to your stories and your insights and the things that you know that you've done over the course of your career. And I appreciate the uh, the amount of time you gave me tonight. And I hope you come back and do it again sometime. We'll do, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. You have a great Christmas. Sir. Same to you and your family, Frank. Take care. Yes. That Bye. is the great Frank Navalo. 
and uh, as you know him, uh, what the great job that Frank does on the Golf Channel, and uh, try to give you a little bit of flavor of what a great golfer that Frank was, you know, growing up and uh, through his uh, amateur career and then through the time that he played out on tour. So he was involved, like I say, if you go back and you look at the mid-1990s, Frank was in the mix continually. Fourth at the 96 Masters, ninth at the 94 U.S. Open, 10th at the 97 Open Championship, and eighth at the 96 PGA. So Frank was in the mix a lot and uh, did some great things there and, like I said, continues to do great things as a, as a wonderful broadcast analyst on the Golf Channel. Like I say, hopefully we get the opportunity to have him back on the show again real soon. All right, folks, before we close up shop, you know how we like to always remind you about the great thing that Jim, great things that Jim Estes and the wonderful folks at the Salute Military Golf Association are doing. Let's hear a reminder from Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, they continue to do amazing things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go online to smga.org. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Bob Estes and Frank Nabilo for joining me tonight, and I hope you all enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check us out online and on Facebook, Next on the Team with Chris Mascaro. Give us your feedback there, and if you have a question for one of our future guests or maybe someone who's already been on the show, let me know. We'll be glad to get that those questions uh, answered for you. Please also check us out on the football side on our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time over on Blog Talk Radio, and that show, like this one, also available as a free podcast over on iHeartRadio and Podbean as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends sharing their stories you know, from their playing days and their insights into today's game, what's going on around the NFL. Plus, we also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Again, you can find that show online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com and this show online at NextOnTheT.net. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to the show tonight. We know you got a lot of shows and podcasts that you have the opportunity to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.